You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. We're going to be looking at Psalm 12 and Psalm 31 tonight. Psalm 12 and Psalm 31. And as you turn there, I just want to say we live in a world today where sinful actions are commonplace. It's, it's part of our life. It's part of what we know. And we're, we're a part of that problem. We understand that, you know, Christians, we understand sin is something that comes within us. It's inside of us. It's not merely an outward thing. It's inside of us. But, but sinful actions are commonplace to the world that we live in today. And because of this, there are many injustices in the world. We, we all know this to be true. And when those injustices, when those sinful actions affect us personally, it hurts, doesn't it? it? It is so painful when someone else's sinful action comes into our life <laughs> and it affects our life. It's, it's painful. What do you do when that happens? What, what, what do you do when somebody else's sin affects you? Maybe it's a, a word that they say. Maybe it's a jab that they make at you, uh, a button they push. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's something they do. What, what do you do in those situations? How do you react? Do you lash out against that person and try to hurt them the same way that you've been hurt? Do you simmer in silence and brood there, maybe in your room or in the closet and lock yourself away and plot revenge? Do you put up walls of emotional protection? I won't let him hurt me like that again. Maybe, you know, your natural reaction to emotional pain or even physical pain is to find a coping mechanism, something that you do to help you cope with the pain that you feel inside. You know, often these coping mechanisms... They develop into unhealthy habits. You know, we, we've all been in the grocery store or been at Walmart when you see the kid, you know, not get the candy bar in the checkout line. <laughs> and and they, they, they turn red, you know, and throw themselves on the floor and they're, they're having a fit of rage. Well, children can learn to do that if they're not corrected, if they're not disciplined. That can become a coping mechanism for a child. But But sometimes adults can do the same thing. We can throw a fit of rage and we begin to break things. If we don't get our way, if somebody hurts us and we, 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 can, we can rage, maybe it turns into drinking or abusing drugs or pornography, going to things like that, looking to things like that to kind of cope with the pain that you're feeling. And sometimes we don't even understand that that's what we're going to, to deal with the emotional pain that we're having. Younger ones can even turn to getting lost in music. I know when I was a youngster, that was kind of one of the things I got lost in. I, I got really caught up into uh, music, you know, secular music, to the point one day my mom found it all, and, you know, she took my tapes and crushed them <laughs> with the hammer, you know. That was back when we had tapes, you know. But... I, I was turning to music, and it was becoming a coping mechanism for me. W- what about video games? Some, some young people turn to video games today, and it's, it's like they can't cope with the pain they're feeling from mom or dad or from friends or school situations, so they, they go into this world of, I'm going to play video games, you know, and that's what I'm going to do, and that's where my identity is. 
or sometimes it's a social media platform where you know they can find somebody to give them the compliments they're looking for or where they can vent you know and they feel heard lots of different coping mechanisms out there but listen what what are we to do as believers I'm sure some of those things that I've mentioned we we've experienced, but what are we to do when we're hurt by sinful actions of other people or by the injustices of this world? Well, listen, in the Psalms, we find at least one answer of what believers are to do when other people's sinful actions hurt us. And instead of running to the coping mechanisms, Psalms 12 tells us that we are created, what we actually need to do is to turn to the Lord for help. Psalm 12 is a a psalm of imprecation. If you remember when we started this series, there were 10 different categories of psalms. Psalm 12 is one of those that fits into the category of imprecation. Now, imprecation means curse or cry for vengeance. And sometimes because of the helplessness and the frustration that David felt when others sinned against him and they hurt him, he would cry out to God for justice on his enemies. In other words, writing a psalm of imprecation was a form of coping with the pain that David experienced in his life. And what we need to remember is that David was pouring out his heart to the Lord in these psalms. We should never take a psalm of imprecation as something that is an example of what we do to other people. Because we don't ever want to go in and break somebody's teeth. Do you know David prayed that in one of the psalms? He said, break their teeth, Lord, you know. It was a moment where he was raw. His emotions were being poured out to God. He didn't pray that so that you and I would one day go, yeah, Christian jihad, man. We're taking the war to them, you know, and we're marching on California. No, I'm just kidding. That's not us. That's not Christianity. Okay? That might be other religions. But the Psalms of imprecation are a way of coping with the injustice of the world, the pain, the emotional pain that comes from sin. And instead of taking it out on people, David is taking it to the Lord. And he's saying, God, I need you to see this. I need you to deal with this. I need your help. And when we find ourselves facing the same kind of injustices in our own lives, these psalms, they suddenly become very precious and very practical. So let's take a look at David's words in verses 1 through 4. Whoops. Verses 1 through 4, we see David's words. First of all, it says, To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp. I'll pause right there really quickly. Notice, There's an instrument here, eight strings, okay? I'm just pointing that out because there's some churches that will tell you no instruments, none none at all. And I'm not knocking those churches. There, There are brothers and sisters in the Lord, but I'm just saying it is okay that we worship with instruments. David did, the temple priests did. There was a full-on choir and musician section of that temple. Jesus and his disciples worshiped in the temple, okay? So worshiping with instruments is okay. But then verse 1 says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? 
Let's pause right there. This psalm is broken into two sections. That first section is David's words. And he begins with a cry for help, doesn't he? He says, help, Lord. Lord, I need help here. Because the godly man ceases to be. The faithful ones are disappearing. That's a cry that we could utter today, isn't it? We, we could make the same cry in America today. We, we see the faithful ones disappearing. We see society changing. In fact, uh, Barna just did a poll on the fastest growing religious group in America. And, and it's not Christians. It's not Muslims. It's not Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. It's the nuns. And I'm not talking about the Catholic women, okay? I'm talking about religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. In other words, on these surveys, they're checking the box, none, when it comes to religion. I have no religion. And and it's an interesting time. For the first time in a long time, we live in a post-Christian society, okay, where it's no longer normal to be Christian, we're, 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 it's, the tide has turned. It's completely the opposite now. Christianity is, is, is declining. And, and here in America as well. So, so this prayer that David is crying out, it's totally relevant to today. We should be crying out for help. We should be crying to the Lord and saying, Lord, the faithful ones are disappearing. The, the godly man ceases to exist. Where more and more what we are seeing is ungodliness increasing. Next, David moves into now a description of the wicked society in verses 2 through 4. There, you saw that. He uses several terms that I want to look at in those verses. David says that this wicked society around him, ungodly, unfaithful, what are they like? Well, he uses a few terms. He says that they speak idly, first of all. Speaking idly, what does that mean to speak idly? Is that just, you know, speaking, you know, you ever had a conversation with someone, you're not sure if they're really talking to you or not. They're just kind of talking to talk. And, you know, and at the end of it, you look at them and you go, oh, I'm sorry, were you talking to me? You know, <laughs> that can be idle words sometimes. That's, that's not what this is. Speaking idly here, the Hebrew word gives a connotation of destructive words or idolatrous words. So speaking idly is to speak useless words that don't have any value, they don't hold to values. And in other words, we might call it worldly speech or a speech that promotes worldly values or values that are opposite of what the word of God would be. So you know, that's a, that's a mark of the wicked society. They're speaking destructive words that are idolatrous in nature. Not, not God-glorifying, but worldly, promoting more of, of uh, value-less type speech. Now, the second thing he says is flattering lips. Flattering lips in the Hebrew is speaking of excessive or insincere praise. You know, Oh, man, you are so, so totally, incredibly amazing. And the only reason you said that to that person was so that they would like you. Because you want something back from them. Listen, that's what flattery is. It's when you want to get something from someone so you butter them up. You use insincere praise. Oh, man, I think you're the best. I think you're amazing. I just love you. 
Sounds like a groupie, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds like what somebody might say to a celebrity. Sounds like something I found myself saying to a pastor, believe it or not, when I was in the college group at Calvary Chapel of Vista. And there was a very well-known pastor that I went to a retreat. I took our college group to. His name was Britt Merrick. He still pastors a church in Southern California. And I had a chance to talk to Britt Merrick. And, and he's an extremely gifted teacher. I have so much respect for him. But, but for me as a pastor, I was like, I was revering him in a way that was a little bit too much, if you know what I mean. Kind of like that buying into that Christian celebrity culture type thing. And, and I walked up to him and I totally embarrassed myself with him. And he just looked at me, and he could just tell, and, and, and he just kind of ignored me, you know, and, and, and it just kept going, and I was just like, oh, man, I, I stuck my foot in my mouth big time. But what was I doing? I was trying to say something to him to get him to recognize me and, and notice me, you know, and say something, you know, or, or to get to know who I was. That's all I wanted. I was flattering him. Flattery is something we use to get what we want, and, and, and it's really a trap because when we're pleasing people instead of the Lord, we can flatter people just to get what we want from them so that we feel good. We want to feel good about ourselves, and so flattery is really a selfish thing. If we need people to be happy, then guess what? We're not fearing God. And, and that's, that's, that's the mark of a wicked society. A wicked society is not going to fear the Lord. So they're going to use a lot of flattery because flattery is going to help them get what they want. Okay? The, the next thing David says is they have a double heart. There, there's that, that double heart, the word in the Hebrew, speaks of an inconsistent mind. It's someone that's easily swayed by whatever's going on around them. You know, if this group seems like they're popular and in control, well, I'm with them. And then when they fall off the bandwagon, then it's somebody else. Well, I'm going to gravitate towards them. And you're not set in who you are as a man or a woman in Christ. You have a double heart. That, that, that marks a wicked society, people that have inconsistent minds. You know, confusion reigns today. People aren't sure where they stand on ethical issues anymore. The further we get from God, the further we remove ourselves from, from the light of truth, the, the, the more confusing things get. There's more double-heartedness. There's also, he says, tongues that speak proud things. A tongue that speaks proud things is arrogance. It, it's really speaking of blasphemy here. Picture the Antichrist. We just finished a class on prophecy in the School of Discipleship and Ministry on Tuesday nights. And in that class, we studied the Antichrist quite a bit. He's got a big role to play. But one of the things you notice right away about the Antichrist is he is arrogant to the point that he thinks he's God. Interestingly enough, New Age religion, very popular today, teaches that you are God, that God is in you, and that you just need to find him. And so through meditation and stretching and all these different things, you can get in touch with the inner energy inside you, and then, you know, you, you're capable. Nothing can stop you. You can do anything. Nothing's impossible. It's this message that you are God, not God, you. And so there's this, that's happening today as well. And then in verse 4, notice verse 4. It's like this saying that comes out of an arrogant, private person. He says, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who's Lord over us? 
That speaks of an autonomous, independent, self-governing type person who says, I'm going to do whatever's right in my eyes and no one can stop me. I'm in control of my life. This is my destiny and, and, and I can do whatever I want. And guys, as more and more people buy into that, the tougher it gets around us. And David was living in that kind of a society. But thank goodness, the Lord is there too. And the Lord has something to say about it all. He's, he's not far removed. He's right there. So check out the Lord's words with me now. In, whoops, verses 5 through 8. Let's read it together. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. So the Lord has something to say to David to encourage him. After David pours out his heart, the Lord speaks in verse 5, and he gives him a promise. Notice that promise. The oppression of the poor for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise. Notice, here's the promise. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Now, one of the things I need to point out, first of all, is that any promises that we find in the Psalms and the Proverbs and the poetry sections in, in the book of Job as well, they're, they're not meant to be specific promises that apply to absolutely every single person in every single moment of their life. They're more meant to be general promises in the sense that they are generally true and ultimately will come to pass. But there are exceptions, there are people who live godly lives, and they go through crazy amounts of suffering. Look, look at Job. Job himself is an example of that. So even though Job experienced suffering, yet now we know that the Lord has uh, uh, dealt graciously and bountifully and lovingly with Job, and that Job is with him now. He's, he's in the Lord's presence. An example of this would be the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. If you've got your Bible, Luke, turn over to Luke chapter 16 with me. Luke chapter 16, and I want to read verses 20 through, 22 through 26. So notice there that, that Jesus tells a story. It's not a parable. Jesus never said it was a parable. And in his other parables, he never used names. He uses a name here. I think he's telling a, a story about a real account of a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. And if you notice there, Lazarus suffered throughout his lifetime. But at the end of his life, notice where he's at. He's in Abraham's bosom. He's being comforted. He's being cared for. He's being loved on. And, and I believe that that is a promise from the Lord that we see back here in Psalm chapter 5, that it's a reminder to us and a comfort. I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 12, verse 5. It's a reminder and a comfort to those who are poor that God will ultimately always have the final word. 
And although there are poor people who suffer and are oppressed and even born into cycles of poverty and have no say over it, and, and, and it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to understand and to watch and to see, this promise is a beautiful promise for these people. And, 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 and I believe that the Lord will, will have the final word. And although they are suffering today, God will one day set them in the safety that they long for. It's a beautiful thing that God speaks to us right there. But secondly, we also see that the Lord's words are contrasted with man's treachery. Did you notice that in verses 6 and 7? It says that the Lord's word is precious it's, it's, been, it, it's like purified silver that's been purified seven times. And all that means, that word seven is, gives the idea of completion in the Hebrew language. It just means that God's words are complete and they're, they're absolutely perfect. And, and the, the, the idea here is they're being contrasted with the speech of the wicked society. You know, the, the, the speech of the wicked society is idle talk. It's idolatrous. It, it, it upholds worldly values. It's flattering in nature, trying to get what he, they want. But, but in contrast to that, the Lord's words, they're precious, they're true, and they'll last forever. In other words, God doesn't have to flatter anybody. <laughs> God's, God's word, when he tells you he loves you, he's not flattering you. He is totally 100% sincere when he says that. When he says that your sins are forgiven in Christ, he means it. He's not, he's not going to make something up. He doesn't speak idly. He doesn't speak with flattering speech. But verse 8 tells us that the battle does go on. Guys, we live in a world where wickedness is being exalted. And when wickedness is exalted, there's going to be more opportunities for evil. It's just going gonna, gonna to proliferate. It's going to become more and more common. So when we see people around us calling what is evil good, things that are really evil, and they're saying that's good, when people are trying to have word wars, and, and, and instead of saying, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pro-abortion, they say I'm pro-choice, Okay, things like that. They, they, change the, they try to change the meanings of things. Guys, when, when they do that and they make something that's evil seem good, it, it's, it's going to become mainstream. And that's what we see happening around us. So we need men and women that are going to speak the truth. We need men and women that are going to share God's word. And, and we need to engage in our world, standing on the promise of God. Cherishing his word, knowing that God's word is going to last forever and that the wicked will not. And so even though some people might say, well, oh man, you're on the wrong side of history on that issue, man. You can say, actually, <laughs> I'm on God's side and God's side is going to last forever. It doesn't ever end. So anyways, closing out with that, we're, we come now to our Selah moment tonight. And that is, we want to spend some time in prayer. We are living in a time when, like David, we need to cry out to the Lord. And we're going to cry out to the Lord for our nation, for our state, and for our community, for those three things. Anything that is on your heart to pray for. Obviously, we want to pray for our leaders on the national, national level, the state level, the community level.
But, but if there's something else on your heart to pray for tonight, for, um, you know, coming out of this psalm, what we just read and studied, Selah is stop and think. And sometimes there's music accompanied with that. Sometimes it is music or a song. But, but tonight it's going to be prayer. Okay, so we just want you to stop and think for a minute. How, how does God want us to cry out? How, how can we cry out in our time and, and things that, are, that God's doing in our heart, in our life? And, and really just want to open it up for that right now. So um, remember I warned you about this. So please, please, don't leave me hanging, guys. I, I don't want to hear crickets this whole time, okay? I, I don't want to have this awkward moment when nobody says anything and we all just kind of stare at our toes, all right? Hey, we're past that. We're way beyond that. We all know each other. We all know who we each other are, and we're just here to pray tonight. So let's just do that. Let's just open up our hearts to the Lord. Amen. All right. Psalm 31. Quickly now. Oh, wait. Why am I telling you guys? I'm the one that needs to go quickly, right? Okay, Psalm 31. It's a psalm of wisdom. We're going we're gonna to fly through Psalm 31 tonight and then spend the rest of our time just in, in a time of worship and taking communion together. So that's the idea uh, for, for tonight. So I've got all the, the breakdown of the psalm there on the screen for you guys. Now, this psalm is a psalm of wisdom, and it points us to the Lord again with an exhortation at the end of it, showing us how to handle different situations when we face enemies and illnesses, okay? Enemies and illnesses. So this psalm is going to give us an exhortation of wisdom at the end of that, how to deal with these these situations. Psalm 31 verse 1 says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily and be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Guys, David had enemies Lots of them, in fact. And his enemies lied about him. They spread uh, slander about him. They ruined his reputation. They even tried to kill him. And when they tried to trap David, David realized his only hope was if the Lord was going to pull him out of that trap. And so he looked to the Lord and he says in verse 4, Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So when David learned that the hand of the enemy was against him, he knew he needed to put his life in the Lord's hands. And that's a great, that's a great lesson. When the enemy's hand is against you, Hop up into the Lord's hands. <laughs> Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, quoted verse 5. And he said, into your hands do I commit my spirit. So Jesus did the same thing. He committed his own life into his Father's hand. Verse 6, I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. 
You have set my feet in a wide place. Now, notice that last phrase, you've set my feet in a wide place. We're going to come back to that in a second here. But, but David, instead of loving those that promoted idols and worshiped to idols, David hated them. And he trusted in the Lord instead. Now, the question has got to leap into our minds. Is it okay to hate? <laughs> Is it actually okay to hate idolaters? Doesn't Jesus say we're to love our enemies? Well, of course, Jesus did say that. He said, love your enemies. But Jesus didn't say to love an idolatrous attitude or to love an idolatrous heart. So listen, we can love people while at the same time hating evil and sin. God hates evil and sin. Those that follow God, we must cultivate, we must learn to hate evil. It's a good example for us to follow. You know, the question, do we truly hate idols and sin, is a good question to ask ourselves. What's my feeling towards sin? (laughs) Now, we may say we hate it, but secretly love it. We keep it around. We, we, We keep that access to it in our lives. You might say you hate it, but if you're keeping it around, keeping access to sin, you're secretly loving it, not hating it. David wasn't doing that. David said, I hate idolaters. David's enemies also led him to rejoice in God's mercy. Because when David's heart trusted in the Lord, he was actually set free from anxiety and worry that were uh, oppressing him and pressing in on him. That's what he, that's what he means there in verse 8. He, he says, you bring me out into a wide place. In other words, God relieves him from all the stress and the pressure that's coming against him because of the enemy. Now, if we want the same thing, if we want to be brought out into the wide place and experience peace and freedom from anxiety and the pressure of the enemy, then we have to do that simple thing of committing ourselves into the Lord's hand. Maybe even just imagining yourself hopping up into the Lord's hand, you know, or the Lord's lap, you know, in a sense, and just just surrendering and committing yourself to him and realizing he's protecting you. Now, in verses 9 through 18, David is going to refer to a time in his life when he also faced an illness. So the first part of the psalm, he was facing enemies. He, he, he commits himself to the Lord, and it brings him into a place where he uh, has peace. But now he's facing an illness in verse 9. He says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I'm in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. Now, underline that, if you will. Because of my iniquity, he says, and my bones waste away. Verse 11, I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors. And I'm repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. David is describing here a period of illness that he experienced. And it appears to be a result of disobedience to the Lord. Did you see that? He says it's because of his iniquity that he's sick. Sometimes, guys, the Lord can even use illnesses in our lives 
to bring us to a place of submission to him. And, and, and guys, I know this to be true from my own life. There, there was a time in my life when, when I know the Lord gave me an illness because of something that I deliberately disobeyed him in. And, and you know, I'm not going to go into the details of that tonight. It's not relevant to what I'm saying right now. But I know that the Lord does work in this way in the lives of those that he loves. Those that he loves, he chastens. If the Lord loves you and you're his son, you're his daughter, he's going to discipline you. And one of the ways he did that in David's life was through this sickness, this illness that brought David to a place of submission before the Lord. And, and, and guys, I've seen, it, I've seen this happen a couple of different ways. People either come into a place of hum, humility and submission, or they get really hard, don't they? And they just go, uh, I'm not going to submit to the Lord. I, you know, I can't believe, you know, and, and they'll harden themselves. And, you know, and it's really sad to see that. But that's, that's not the way it has to work. It's not the way that God wants it to work. David's illness, though, did you notice that it caused his friends and his neighbors to kind of avoid him? He says, my neighbors see me and they run away, you know. <laughs> he must have been hacking, you know. <laughs> you know, his friend, you ever been around a guy like that? And you're just kind of like, I got to get out of here, man. <laughs> you are, you're going to get me sick. Our daughter, uh, Eden. <laughs> well, okay, never mind. I won't share that story. So never mind. Anyways, I just got to look for my wife. and I mean... The Holy Spirit told me to, you know, be quiet. So, <laughs> But other people were speaking evil of David behind his back. They're kind of saying things. Oh, look, look at the king. He's weak. He's sick. Maybe he's going to die, you know. And, and so this is causing fear in David's life. Yet notice it also causes him to seek the Lord for help. David's coping mechanism is to run to the Lord. Verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Again, you see his, his heart is to run to the Lord for the help. And as David, as David trusts in the Lord, the Lord gives him peace. Now, David expresses his feelings to God about those that persecute him. And, and you know, what? I, I want you guys to know it's okay to do that. David prays a, a, a prayer that, you know, if I was to say that to somebody, it would be, it would be wrong. <laughs> But when I pour it out to God, it's okay. That's, that's what David is doing. He says, let the lying lips be put to silence. And, and that's okay to pour out, pour out to God. That's where the Bible is letting us know. That's where, the, that's where this needs to happen is in the presence of God. Now, we wouldn't say that to somebody, to their face. <laughs> that, that, that's not God's heart. But when we can be real with the Lord. Again, we come now to verse uh, 19, where we see the exhortations. And, and this is, these are six verses, and each group, or there's three groups of two verses, and each group has its own main idea. The first one is God's goodness, verse 19. David says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you. 
which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. So, so here we see that although David suffered, we, we too are going to suffer because we're living in a fallen world just like David did. But listen, that suffering cannot compare to the greatness of God's goodness, which he stored up for us in the end. God is storing up goodness for you. God is storing up goodness for the godly. And there's a real place of shelter for our soul in the presence of God. Guys, all of this should encourage you that our, our first thing that we run to shouldn't be a bad habit. It shouldn't be a fleshly passion. It should be the Lord's presence. Number two, the, the, the second part of that is that David gives a personal testimony now. Verse 21, he says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. David is testifying of what the Lord has done in his life. And then he he ends with a call to love and to trust him. And this is the wisdom part of the psalm. This is the exhortation. He says, oh, love the Lord, all you his saints. This is wisdom, guys. Love the Lord. For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Guys, when we love the Lord, he brings hope and faith into our hearts. He adds those things to us as we love him. He grows us in hope. He grows us in faith. Our trust strengthens, and guys, he gets us through. He's going to get us through. And so that's the exhortation of this psalm. Run to the Lord. Learn to love the Lord. Trust the Lord. When the enemy comes, spiritual warfare. When illnesses come, hey, maybe it's from the hand of the Lord. We don't know. But, but we submit to the Lord. We cry out to the Lord for help. Now, I, I, I do believe that if an illness is from the Lord, he'll reveal that to you. I don't believe God is a God who just, you know, afflicts you without letting you know that, hey, this is something that's from me, okay? God is a loving father. He always, like a loving father, is going to let you know if you're being disciplined, okay? If you pray, if you seek the Lord, if you ask him, he's going to reveal that to you. And, and so, you know, we don't need to fear him, but we, we do in the sense of healthy reverence and living our lives to please him fear him in the sense of, oh no, you know, God's got it out for me. What's he going to do to me next? You know, type thing. That's, that's an unhealthy fear that doesn't come from the Lord. There's no shadow of turning in God. He is, he is a good, good father. Um, James 1.17 tells us he's the father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning at all. And every good and perfect gift comes from him. Even, even the gift of discipline, guys, comes from our father. So, uh, at this time, we're just going to wrap it up and, and just spend some time running to the Lord. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever situation, whether it's a work situation, a family situation, maybe it's a personal character issue, something in your life you're struggling with, a sin thing. Hey, we've got the crosses set up tonight, and there's the cushion at the foot of the cross. If you need to come down and kneel at the foot of the cross and just pray, about something, maybe confess a sin, that's what that's there for. And, and, and as we're kneeling before that cross, it's a reminder to us that our Savior, Jesus, died 
and shed his blood to pay the penalty for all of our sin. And, and so when we come to him, we come with this realization of that. And as we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.